Okay, this morning we're continuing to look at the Ten Commandments. I thought after doing First Peter, we would look at an Old Testament passage or topic, and I was always been intrigued with the Ten Commandments. In fact, if parents, if you're going to teach your kids anything when they're young, teach them the Ten Commandments. Put in their heart already the very things that are important for them to understand God in his character and what he requires. So we're looking this morning at Exodus chapter 20, and I want again to read the passage today. And today I'll just read from verse uh, 1 through verse 6. And it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol of any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we do come before your word, we bow humbly before you, Lord, for we know that this is the word of God. This is not a word that originated with men or could have, we could have never come up with the Ten Commandments. Uh, and Lord, we know that they are perfect. They are written in stone. They are eternal. And they will never pass away because they are part of a, your character, of who you are and what you require of us. And I pray, Lord, as we understand them and, and think about them, I pray, Lord, that this, uh, the principles of your commandments would be evident in our daily thinking and life and practice. Help us, Lord, to understand them better. In Christ I pray this. Amen. So the commandments are a reflection of the character of God and his standard of living required of holy people. And by way of review, this is from last time, just to bring up to speed because we haven't been in there for a while, the first thing we looked at in verse 1 and 2 is that the person revealed in the first commandment, uh, it, he is a God of revelation, meaning that is God can be known, uh, that the Lord has made him his will known to us, and his will is found in the word of God. God reveals himself as a very personal God. There is something very warmly uh, personal about the statement in Verse number 1 and 2, where it says, I am the Lord, your God. And then, of course, secondly, we saw that the person revealed in the first commandment is that he is a God of redemption, uh, where he says that I am a God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And, of course, that is the picture of God bringing us out of the slave market of sin and saving us by the blood of Christ. He's delivering us from something we could have never delivered ourselves from. So he is a God of redemption. 
So God not only communicates clearly to his people who he is and what he requires, but also acts on their behalf. And notice that God did not say, because I created you, I am giving you the law. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It was on the basis of this great act of redemption that he sought their obedience. So God deserves first place in the lives of his people because of who he is and because of what he has done for them. And then the second thing that we learned uh, last time is the principle revealed in the first commandment is that of that of defining other gods. In verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, in this first commandment, the absolute sovereignty and preeminence of Christ, of the Creator, is in, insisted upon. And since He is who He is, He will tolerate no competitor or rival. His claim upon us is paramount because He is God. So if the people were not worshiping the true and the living God alone, then they were worshiping some other God because we have to worship. We are created to worship. And so it was Arthur Pink who said, there are other gods besides idols of wood and stone, money and pleasure and power and fame and fashion and gluttony and a score of other things which make self supreme and usurp the rightful place of God in our affections and our thoughts. Remember, the commandments are about loving God. And God showing his love toward us in giving us these commandments. And of course, once we realize who God is, then of course we need to, secondly, dethrone all other gods that we could be giving our affections and times to, where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. So the command here is thou shall have no other gods to confront me or to be objects in front of me. See, God uh, gods that are set up over against Jehovah may be said to be before him or in his sight, that they are gods besides, in addition to him, is a matter of course, but more than this, they are gods opposed to him. So there is to be no God in your heart that you are giving allegiance to except Jehovah God, the covenant-making God, the God who's displayed his love toward his people. So if you are, then it must be the, that God must be dethroned and disregarded. Your full loyalty must be given to the true and the living God who has revealed himself in verbal and written form. So faithfulness must be given, again, to God alone where Deuteronomy tells us that they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So when Jesus was being tested as the second Adam in the wilderness, Satan had come against him. And in coming against him, in his weakness, and in the full power of temptation, Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Uh, If only he said, you worship me, 
And Jesus replied, of course, uh, his reply is recorded in the Gospels, and especially Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 10. And, of course, this is what Jesus said finally, the last verse there, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So that word only is to be stressed there. So the principles contained in these commandments are not to be ignored by Christians. Our Lord did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. So now Christians live under the law of Christ, which includes the moral law and then the Ten Commandments. And contained within his law, of course, are the moral law in which Christ laid bare the inner impulse of the law, which is love to him, love to God supremely, and then to reflect his love to others is to fulfill the commandments. So the bottom line from last time of the first commandment had to do with this. The most intimate of all Relationships on the human plane, marriage became an, an analogy for God's intimate relationship with his people. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, implies that there may be no intruding third parties in a marriage. It's we become one in the Lord when we become believers. And so, therefore, there can be no other intruding parties within our relationship with God, just as a husband and wife cannot have other intruding parties. There cannot be a third party, uh, according to God's foundation of marriage found in Genesis. So as we together are introduced now this morning to the second commandment, keep in mind that there are ten commandments not ten, ten suggestions, as if uh, one has a choice of taking or leaving them. The order of the commandments are very important uh, as we grasp them. The first four concern our human, a human responsibility to Godwards. The last five, our obligation manwards. While the fifth commandment, and it's interesting when I get there, the fifth commandment suitably actually bridges the two. For in a certain sense, parents occupy to their children the place of God, where their children are first to obey their parents. And if their parents are obeying God, then the parents are teaching them how a child is to respond to authority. And, of course, the ultimate authority would be God himself. So there is a discernible flow to the next commandment. The second commandment prohibits the manufacture and the worship of any kind of image in an attempt to worship God. And so, as we look at that this morning, we will find that there is a prohibition revealed in the second commandment. And the first one is this, in verse number four, it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness 
of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So this, the second commandment condemns a very different sin than the first commandment. The first commandment condemns the worshiping of false gods. The second commandment condemns the making of any image or symbol even of the true God. And so that would be what we're looking at here, the prohibition not to make them, to manufacture them. And, you know, just think of Israel's history. Israel had a very rich and colorful history. They had plenty of material uh, to violate this command. You, You think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the stories that go along with them. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah and God... Uh, pouring a fire and brimstone on them for their sin. You think of Jacob's ladder to heaven and or Jehovah's uh, recent plagues poured out on Egypt found in the context of this passage. Would any of these, the people of God, might have attempted to perpetuate a visible and a permanent form of worship, a carved image or a painted picture with the intention? of making them the objects of religious reverence and worship. And if you go anywhere in the world today, different parts of the world, you find that people are still making idols. They're still bowing down to images. They still require some kind of thing to look at, to touch, to see, in order for them to be able to worship God correctly. But the problem is in Scripture is God never wants us to do that. He never wants us to at all whatsoever make some kind of image that we are to bow down to or that we're, that should inflame our passions to increase somehow our desire to worship. All right, so just think of that for a moment. And then the second one would be this, that there is a prohibition here not to worship them, not only not to make them, but then, then not to bow down to them. You shall not worship them or serve them. So, so obviously the Lord knows that because of who we are and because of our sinfulness that we are going to want to worship something, and we will be worshiping something or someone, some object. We will do that. And so we know also that it is very fitting for people to bow to Yahweh, the true God. So when somebody bows to the true God, then that true God receives their worship. Like Jesus received worship when people bowed down to him because he was God. And so we see that every time one comes into the presence of God in Scripture, they are bowing down. They are giving him allegiance properly. They ought to do that. That is fitting for all believers to do that. Just consider these, these few passages of scriptures. It says, Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. Also, and I bowed low and worshipped the Lord again. And then in Genesis 24:52, when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. All of these are fitting responses of someone who is worshipping the true and living God, that they are bowing down to him because of who he is, because of 
what he revealed himself to be in Scripture. So the command for anything else is prohibited. Do not worship them. Do not serve them. Do not make offerings to them. It is not fitting for human beings to bow down to any other. If they do, that would be idolatry. And, of course, these commandments are hedging against idolatry. That's what they're doing. So God does not want us to look at something that is visual in order to help us to worship, nor something that is tangible in which we can touch and carry with us. So let's consider two situations in which a person may think about images. According to R. W. Dale, writing on the Ten Commandments, brought up these two things, which are our common understandings, would be worshiping God under the symbol of a material image. It may be alleged that the figure of wood or stone or metal is the real God. It is regarded as being only a symbol of the unseen presence of God, to which the worship is actually offered to God through seeing something, through an image that you are worshiping, looking at, thinking you're worshiping the real God. In other words, the visible form makes the visible God more real. God's invisible, right? He's an unseen God. So if I could just make something to try to reflect who I think he is, then I think that that's how people would worship through that image. All right, secondly, if a person will say, well, I don't really believe in visible representations of God. Well, a second one would be worshiping God under the symbol of an intellectual conception of God. For those who reject that visible representation of God, form for themselves an intellectual image of God and worship him by means of that. So both instances, the representation is part of the divine Uh, Really, in both instances, the representation that it would give to the divine greatness and glory of God diminishes, actually, the greatness and glory of God. Both are guilty of the violation of the first and second commandment because, in one case, it is the work of one's hands, and in another case, it is the work of one's intellect. See, the problem is that we cannot conceive of who God is on our own. We have to get revelation from God, from him directly, from the word of God, to be able to understand who he is and what he has done. We can get it from nowhere else. We would have never come up with this. And that's why there is so much idolatry in the world because we are, our hearts are idol-making factories, as one person said. Any attempt any attempt to portray God by his creation would confuse the creator with part of his creation, thus diminishing his greatness and sovereignty over all things. If someone needs a visible or a tangible object, whether it's a cross or a statue or a picture or even music to bring 
up religious emotion and worship, they are in danger of the visible and the intellectual representation or some other thing becoming something more than what they intend. See, that's the danger of idolatry. Uh, that, look, just take your Bibles for a minute and turn over to Deuteronomy, all right? And I want you to just, a couple passages of Scripture there, Deuteronomy 15, because Deuteronomy means second law, and so in Deuteronomy we, ha- we have a, a further interpretation even of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, which I'm going to look at later, but I want you to just see these passages. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. It says this, so watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, when in the midst of the fire, verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 4, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal, that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heavens, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. So see, in Deuteronomy, again, fleshing out a little bit more the warning that God gives to his people about any kind of visible representation in which you use to induce worship. And many times in the Old Testament, we find that that worship is somebody trying to worship the true and living God by an object, whether it be intellectual or whether it be made. For example, if every day I bow before the crucifix in prayer, if I address it as if it were Christ, though I know it's not, I shall come to feel for it, a, for it a reverence and a love which are the very essence of idolatry. But if once you permit the deeper religious emotions to become attached, however slightly, to a material symbol, there is the beginning of the very superstition of which the second commandment's Uh, actually forbids. In other words, things become mystical. Things become superstitious. And many religions, the point of their system is that you really never get answers. It's all about image and atmosphere and feeling, and it it rises up, ooh, a mystical thing. Oh, this must be great. You know, I feel things. And they begin to worship in that way, and that is exactly where idolatry takes a person. See, we, do not, we don't need aid in order to worship God. Religious devotion 
not found in the truth. The word of God must itself be false. You know, I tell people that, you know, my father, um, after witnessing to him for some 25 years uh, and sharing the gospel with him, um, he called me one day and he says, you know what, um, I've become a Christian. And he says, I said, well, how did that happen? You know, of course, this is 25 years of witnessing. And he said to me, um, I was reading Exodus 20, and I saw the first two commandments, and I understood them for the first time in my life, and I realized that I worshiped Mary, and that everything was about Mary. And I, I realized there that I was an idolater. And, and he, he called me and told me that, and then the, he never, he came, started coming in, into the church here and, and studying the Word of God, and he studied the Word of God for about eight and a half years after he became a believer. So, so see, the Scripture is the powerful thing that will, will set us free from things we think we're doing right, but when we come to Scripture, we find out we're doing them wrong. And idolatry is a kind of worship that has, been dist- has really been distorted from the original form, object, and intention of worship. One of the Hebrew terms for sin in connection with worship is the word iniquity. And iniquity means to be bent or to be curved or to be twisted. So then idolatry is something that is not as it should be, not as it was intended to be. And just as the psalmist contrasts really the importance of uh, the, well, actually the weakness of idols as compared to the greatness of God. For example, look at this passage of Scripture here. It says this. Listen, look what it says. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. In verse 8, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. So in other words, idolatry is really bringing someone to the place where their visible or intellectual representation of God actually becomes something other than they ever intended to be, and they begin to be an idolater, even though they think they are worshiping, at many cases, the true and living God. See, so the people of Israel, hardly moved from the trembling presence of God, felt beside Mount Sinai in giving uh, the Ten Commandments to Moses, and of course the delay of the leader, Moses, coming down from the mountain, when they pleaded with Aaron to make them a visible God to go before them. And this is where i like you to take your Bibles. Again, turn to Exodus chapter 32, and notice in verse 1 through verse number 8, because here is the situation where Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the commandments from God. And he is coming down uh, to, to the people. 
going to present to them the commandments. And notice what takes place while he's absent. It says in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 32, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the peoples tore off their gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What they were doing here is they were actually worshiping the true God through an image. That's idolatry. See, that's what people do. They form something they think God is like, and they worship through that, but they are thinking they're worshiping the true and the living God. Also, then what did Aaron do? He made an altar, and they began to offer sacrifices. Look at verse 5 and 6 of Exodus 32. It says, when Aaron saw this, He built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. In other words, they were worshiping passionately, not based on the molten image, based on what they already experienced about what God has done for them. All right, in doing what? Bringing them out of the bondage of Egypt into now the wilderness where God would form a people for himself. So, see, the golden calf was not intended to represent any false god, any deity worshipped by heathen races, but Jehovah himself, God himself. The feast in its honor was a festival to Jehovah. And then notice in verse number 7 and 8, it says, Then the Lord of Exodus 32, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom I brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and says, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So in saying all this, I'm just showing you the example of what usually takes place when a person begins to misrepresent with even good intentions who God really is, and they move away from the truth. So in other words, what happens is that Idolatry is actually quite absurd before God. And it's, it's absurd to the point where it, it is so foolish that they would even do anything like that. And it becomes an abomination before the Lord. Another passage of Scripture, a large one, it says here in, in Isaiah chapter 44, Surely 
he cuts cedars. This is really talking about somebody who, who gets uh, wood, and this is how he uses tre- he grows trees, and he uses the wood. What does he use the wood for, right? Look what it says here. It says, surely he cuts cedars for himself and makes a cypress, a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So what does he do? He takes one of them and warms himself. He, he also makes a fire to bake bread. And then he also makes a god and worships it and makes it a graven in, image and falls down before it. Verse 16 says, half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he cuts, uh, he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire, but the rest of it he makes into a god, a graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. Verse 19, no one calls, recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? See, in other words, how, they, how do they become like the idol? They are deaf and remain deaf. They remain blind and they remain dumb and do not ever get to the truth of who God really is. Someone who worships an idol does not know they're believing a lie. They don't know it. They're blinded to that. Only by God entering in, saving someone, giving them eyes to see and ears to hear, transforming their heart and regenerating them and making them new, and then bringing the word to them, and as one opens up the word of God, now they get the truth of who God is. And that's when worship begins. In fact, you have never worshipped God in your life until you become a believer until you become regenerate. Because you you thought you did, but you didn't. You were just religious. You weren't a believer. You weren't born again to God's family. And so, see, when you come to know the Lord in this way, then you are no longer believing a lie, but you are believing the truth. And if you believe the truth, the truth shall make you free from this bondage of idol-making and worshiping God by your own conceptions and by other means. So the making and the worship of images of Yahweh or any other God, as if there are any others, is flatly prohibited in the commandments. Now why? Well, why, why is that? Well, here is the first reason, and I'll probably have no time to go to the second reason, but let's look at the first reason. Here's the reason why. Back to Exodus chapter 20, 
And it is a very important reason because you know what this reason is doing to us? It's showing us who God is. It's portraying to us the true God. And notice what it says. So here is the reasons. There are two, but here's the first one. That God, notice in verse 5, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That's why I am to take this commandment seriously, because God is jealous. Now, brethren, out of all the attributes one could imagine about God and glean from the word of God that would cause admiration towards God, just think of it, jealousy probably would not be one of them. Yet, in God's self-revelation, he has done that which we would not expect again. He has revealed himself as a jealous God and has put it on record in permanent written form on the Ten Commandments. As Exodus Chapter 31 reveals, when he had finished speaking with them on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And on that stone was written this, that I am a jealous God. Now, even more striking is when Scripture says this about God. If you look in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 34, and you should turn there and look at this passage of Scripture. And what it says there, Exodus 34, look at verse 14. It says this, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Oh, wait a minute. Now we're getting understanding from the Word of God about the very name of God. A name has to do with the characteristic of the one who bears that name. And in this case, it is the God who created the heaven and the earth, the God who delivered people, the God who wants to have a relationship with his people. So we see here, all over the Bible, we are told about God's jealousy. Zechariah says this, So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And then also in Ezekiel chapter 39, in verse number 25, it says this, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. So God is jealous for his own glory, for his own namesake. And even as the psalmist tells us, for they provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. See, God is jealous. 
and is, is aroused when his people worship anyone or anything besides him. So we have a problem wrapping our minds around this attribute of God because jealousy is such a defect in human beings, isn't it? Keep in mind that man, though, is not the measure of his maker. We don't set the standard. God sets the standard. So that means further, human beings often show the corrupting effects of sin when they act in jealousy, but not so with God. See, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration. As said by J.R. Packard, he says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy often is, but his appears instead as literally praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. Now, what is that thing? What is that precious thing that God is preserving in the Ten Commandments, in this commandment, the second commandment? The precious thing is God's covenant relationship with his redeemed people, that God's Jealousy is aroused in reaction to Israel's violation of the covenant as in a marriage relationship. Jealousy rises when unfaithfulness is suspected, like adultery. Again, uh, pastor and theologian J.R. Packard uh, mentions that there are two sorts of jealousy among people. And the first one is this, vicious jealousy. This is an expression of the attitude that I want what you've got and I hate you because I haven't got it. It is an infantile resentment springing from unmortified covetousness, which expresses itself in envy and malice and meanness of action. Many crimes of passion are driven by and committed with and because of jealousy. Jealousy is the motive that will land many people in prison. And usually, what, where does that happen at? It usually happens at in relationships. Relationships between man and women, women and husbands and wives, when a third party enters in and violates that relationship. And so what happens there, jealousy rises, and somebody takes the matter into their own hands, and they then commit a crime, because they, jealousy is, a, is a, an emotion that is very hard to control. In fact, listen to what it says in, in Proverbs 27, verse 4, it says this, Wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? That's Proverbs 27, 4. Who can stand before jealousy? Who can, who can fight against jealousy? Jealousy is not rational. Somebody will not reason with you when they're, when they're inflamed with jealousy. That's human jealousy. But there is also another kind of jealousy. It's looked at kind of in a, in a good way, a positive way. It's the, it's the zeal to protect 
a love relationship or to avenge it when broken. This sort of jealousy is considered a positive virtue because it shows a grasp of the true meaning of the husband-wife relationship together with proper zeal to keep it intact. Scripture points out that a husband's jealousy to guard his marriage against attack is a quite normal thing. It's, it's a good kind of jealousy. I'm protecting what God's given me. I'm protecting my own. To take an action against anyone who violates it as natural and normal and right as a proof of the value of marriage, the value of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman. So an example of that would, would be found uh, in several places in Scripture. Numbers chapter 5, a large section of Scripture, but the bottom line there was that the Bible talks about the spiritual, uh, the spirit of a jealousy that rises up in a husband who feared that his wife was unfaithful. And then, of course, they go through a procedure to make sure and find out the results of what had happened. So his jealousy can be subsided and could be put down so it doesn't carry off into some vicious act which usually jealousy ends in. So the Old Testament regards God's covenant as his marriage with Israel, carrying with it a demand of unqualified love and loyalty. And that's what should be in a marriage, unqualified love and loyalty. So that means that the worship of idols and all compromising relationships with non-Israelite idolaters, at least from the Old Testament perspective, constitutes disobedience and unfaithfulness, which God saw as spiritual adultery, provoking him to jealousy and vengeance. So God's jealousy is his fervent, passionate protection of what is his that he will not transfer his honor. He will not transfer his honor that is due his name to another or to some other object, as the Scripture informs us, like in a passage of Scripture in Isaiah 42 and verse number 8, where it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. See, God seeks what he should seek. And what does God seek? He seeks his own glory in and through his people that God is a jealous God. And if you have become a a believer in Jesus Christ, God is jealous for you. He's not going to let anything happen to you. He's not going to let anything come between you and him. And if it does, immediately he will allow his spirit of God to convict us of a sin. So that relationship continue, should, that it should continue to grow as he does that. God is jealous for us. And with God's jealousy, that's why salvation is eternal. Because if God saves us, 
if he sends his son to die in our place and he rescues us from sin's bondage and sets us free, gives us his spirit as, as a down payment, then he does that because he is jealous for you and he will keep you and he will not allow anything to come between you and him. See, that's very important for us to understand when we consider the jealousy of God because God's jealousy is connected to another word in Scripture, and that is zeal. Actually, God's jealousy and his zeal kind of go together. That his jealousy, in all it displays, are just as the Scriptures point out, where the Bible says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. So what, what, what should our response be? Uh, to God's jealousy for his own glory and his own people. Well, our jealousy really uh, should be, the jealousy of God should re- really require us to be zealous for God. That our right response to God's love for us is love to him. And so our right response to his jealousy, even His jealousy over us is zeal for him, zeal for his person, zeal for his cause, zeal for his honor. And a zealous person in religion is preeminently a person of one thing. The one thing that a person has when it comes to responding to the jealousy that God has for us is to please and advance God's glory. That Jesus really is the supreme example of the zeal of the Lord for his people and for the glory of God when we saw him in the temple, throwing over the money changers and driving people out of the temple because they used the temple in in a, a way to make money and not to worship and praise God and pray to him, where it says in Scripture that his disciples remember that It was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So our response should be to be zealous before God, which hedges against keeping or committing, uh, breaking the second commandment and also shows our love for God, that we are jealous of Anything that would come between us and our relationship with the Lord, we will not allow it, just as a husband and wife should not allow it in their relationship. They should protect that at all costs. Also, the jealousy of God threatens churches which are not zealous for God. In other words, that... There could be a group of people that call themselves Christians, but there's no zeal for God among the group of people. They are like the church of Laodicea. The church of Laodicea, the Bible tells us, was a church that really brought an extreme offense against God. And what was their offense? This is what it says in Revelation 3. It says, I know your deeds and that you are neither hot or cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
So in other words, they were zealous for other than God's glory because this is what he mentions in Revelation. He says this, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In verse 19, it tells us this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So they have fallen away from the very motive that causes us to be on fire for God, to be zealous for God. And how many churches today may be sound and respectable, but they are lukewarm. There's not a group of people there that are zealous for God, that want to live for the Lord and please Him in all that they do. No, of course, we know not perfectly, but that's what their desire is. So then, as we bring that all together God refuses to share his people with another God, whether made nor imagined. God demands from those whom he has loved and redeemed utter and absolute loyalty. And if his people betray his love by unfaithfulness, he will vindicate his claim by stern action against them. So jealousy is not a dormant characteristic. It is always represented in Scripture as a, as really as a motive to action, whether it be for wrath or for mercy. In other words, God cannot let idolatry go on too long without addressing it. God's jealousy leads him, on the one hand, to judge and destroy faithless faithlessness among his people who fall into idolatry and sin, and on the other hand, to restore his people after judgment comes and discipline comes and the people are humbled and they come back in repentance. And what moves the action of God in his jealousy? He is jealous for his own glory. The scripture tells us, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. God will not share himself with anyone else except his people. That's clear in scripture. And so that's why God hates this. And next, next time when we meet, we're going to see that God cannot let sin of, the sin of idolatry go unpunished. And I, so I want to end with the passage I'll pick up from this passage next week. And look what it says in Exodus chapter 5. Excuse me, Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 5. It says in verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here it is visiting the iniquity, there's that 
the word for sin, twist or bent, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations to those who hate me. And then, of course, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So anyone who's involved with idolatry, thinking they are serving and living for the true living God by some object, whether visible, tangible, or intellectual, actually hates God. And God will judge them for it. When we get to 1 John, the last chapter, uh, 1 John tells us, the last verse says, keep yourself from idols. Right? Why? Because idolatry is one sin other than repented of and believing in Jesus Christ will condemn someone for eternity. When people think that they go through life being religious, extremely zealous for a religion, but they have been blind and they have been dumb and they have not seen or heard the truth of the word of God to set them free. They will be under the judgment of God. And so we're going to look at that next time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. Lord, I know contained in it are difficult things. But Lord, they are so needed for our spiritual understanding, for our advancement in maturity, for our becoming more like you, for the transformation of our mind. It is so important for us as your people, to be aware of what the scriptures teach about the very character of God. And so I I pray, Lord, that you would take the truths of the word of God and impress them strongly upon our heart to the point, Lord, that it would change what we do and how we think and that we would come before you with a repentant heart, humbly wanting to please you in all that we do. Give us a zealousness for your glory and for your honor, just as you have a jealous zealousness for us to keep us and to have a relationship with us. I thank you, Lord, for that. And I praise you for all that you have done and will do in our lives and in our midst. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are going to have the Lord's table in just a few minutes. As I mentioned uh, before, there are two agreed-upon qualifications for partaking of the Lord's table. First one, only those who have repented and believed in Christ and have been part, really have participated in believers' baptism should participate because it is a sign of them being Christian and continuing in the Christian life. Also, a second qualification for participation is self-examination. Those who eat, the Bible says, and drink without discerning the body. See, the problem in the Corinthian church was a failure to see their selfishness and how inconsiderate they were in their conduct towards each other. And so... Instead of having unity, they had disunity. Instead of having self-giving sacrifice, they had enmity and and, uh, selfishness. So, in other words, let a person examine 
themselves uh, and ask the question as to how their relationships are with people in the church and within their own relationships in the body of Christ. And because we are to reflect the very character that the Lord, to whom we serve, is asking us to exemplify as we partake of the Lord's table in, uh, in participating in the bread that represents the body of Christ and the cup that represents the blood of Christ. Because as we think of this ordinance, that during the Passover, which Jesus, again, where this ordinance started from, at the Passover, when the lamb was slain, the lamb was to represent a submissive Messiah, a lamb that goes to the slaughter. The unleavened bread that we have, remember, leaven represents sin. So unleavened bread represents the Messiah as being sinless. And then, of course, as they ate the bitter herbs uh, in the Old Testament, the bitter herbs pointed to the suffering of Messiah. So within the Lord's table are many things that come together as we think of it and participate in it. So let's take a few minutes and let's uh, prepare our hearts for the Lord's table and I'll be back to read the scripture as we, uh, we, do, we do that. Thank you.